Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died, was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in the like in the manner in, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, so I want to just begin thinking about this difficult parable. Um, one of the interesting things I think about uh, the uh, Maddie Pryor version is that it draws out for us the uh, social justice aspect of uh, this parable. You can really hear how this would be one of those uh, songs where the rich get their comeuppance and uh, the poor get raised up and we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, this is, uh, it's a difficult and troubling parable. Um, and one of the things I think it raises for us is the extent to which actions committed in this life have eternal consequences. Um, so the reason I put a, a picture of the Egyptian concept of justice behind myself is this uh, deceptively simple story actually seems to owe its origin to the Egyptian story of Setme. Uh, so it's likely that there's some Egyptian influence going on here, uh, an Egyptian story that Jesus is aware of. Uh, what happens is in, uh, in the Egyptian story, Setme observes the elaborate funeral procession of a rich man. And uh, then he notices that there's no funeral procession following um, the body of a poor man who is being carried off to the graveyard. And Setme thinks that the rich are much better off, but his son expresses the desire uh, that Setme at his death will experience the funeral of the poor man. 
Setme is initially devastated that his son seems to be wishing him ill, but then his son takes him on a tour of the realm of the dead, and Setme sees an elegantly dressed man seated close by the god Osiris, and it turns out that this is the poor man dressed in the rich man's clothes, and the poor man is being honoured because of his good deeds, uh, which it turns out were more numerous than his sins, and that uh, he hadn't been compensated during his earthly life, so he gets his compensation in the life after. Then the scene uh, turns to the rich man, who it turns out had more sins than good deeds, and he's being seen as being punished by having a hinge pin from the gate to the realm of the dead impaled into his right eye. And the lesson from this Egyptian story seems to be that whoever is good on the earth will find that the underworld is good to them, and whoever is evil on the earth will find that eternity goes badly for them. So, so much for the Egyptians. Uh, but now I want to introduce the Roman concept of justice. Uh, this conviction that wrongs will be righted and imbalances redressed in the afterlife wasn't just something that came in Egypt, it spread throughout the Mediterranean and throughout the Greek and Roman world. And so you get the idea that the afterlife is a place where the scales of justice are, are in some way rebalanced, coming through in both Greek and Roman mythology. The idea that some kind of judgment after death results in punishment or reward into eternity. And this is found in both Plato and in Plutarch. Interestingly, the Jewish view is less clear cut. Uh, there are a variety of traditions within the Hebrew scriptures um, that give us ideas as to how the Jews thought cosmic justice might work. But what we need to be very alert to uh, as we come to a parable such as the rich man and Lazarus is that our contemporary understandings of hell and what we think it means to us owe far more to the Greco-Roman mythology and to some of the developments of theology that took place through the Middle Ages than they do to either the Jewish tradition or to the teachings of Jesus. So what about the Hebrew Bible? Well, let's uh, talk about the Witch of Endor for a moment. In the Hebrew Bible, there was a tradition based on the book of Deuteronomy, which asserted that those who are good will have good lives, whilst those who are bad will have bad lives. The logic of it was that if someone was having a bad life, then they must in some way have deserved this, whilst those who have many good things in life will be free to enjoy the blessings that come their way from God. Um, there are, of course, echoes of this in some of the teaching of Jesus, where, you know, he is asked with regards to the man born blind, you know, who sinned? Is it him or, or his parents? The idea that somebody's sin must have caused his misfortune. Um, and I think we, we still get it today, uh, even in our world, in, in certain forms of Christianity, where people believe that, you know, wealth and health and prosperity uh, are blessings that we in some way deserve from God, whereas uh, so that you're kind of justifying um, that that idea that health and wealth are, are God's blessings. I, I think it's an abhorrent theology, just to name it for what it is, uh, but you certainly will get it uh, taught in contemporary theology. This rather simplistic Deuteronomistic, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, cause and effect theology, uh, however, certainly wasn't the only attempt uh, we find in the Hebrew Bible at understanding the relationship between human behaviour and uh, experiences of reward or punishment. So the book of Job, for example, is 
an exploration in narrative form of why it might be that bad things happen to good people. And the conclusion of Job is that the hero doesn't deserve his fate. Rather, his troubles were sent to test his faith. Uh, and he, he still, at the end of the book, does receive an earthly reward for faithfulness. Um, he gets his new wife and family and possessions given to him to compensate him for those that have been taken away. And this is a difficult ending, actually, uh, for this book, because it seems to undermine the theology of the book. Um, I'd refer you to the sermons I preached last summer uh, and into the autumn on the book of Job. Uh, they're all available via our website on the sermon page if you're interested in revisiting the theology of the book of Job. But it's actually quite late in the Jewish tradition that the idea of reward and punishment occurring after death starts to become part of Hebrew thinking. And even by the time of Jesus, it is a far from universal belief that God judges and then rewards or punishes people after death. For example, the Jewish group uh, known as the Sadducees were well known for not having a belief in the afterlife at all. Um, there's that joke I remember learning as a kid in uh, Sunday school. Um, you know, the, the, the Sadducees don't believe in life after death and that's why they're sad, you see. Boom, boom. Anyway, uh, the Pharisees had a fairly well-developed understanding of an afterlife that comprised uh, reward or punishment, depending on how you had lived this life. And there are three key words which it's worth knowing about if we're going to get to grips with the backgrounds to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And these are the three words of Sheol, Hades and Gehenna. So let's move on my image one more. We'll talk, start talking about Sheol. Um, in the Old Testament, Sheol, uh, a Hebrew word, is used to describe the place of the dead. And it occurs 65 times throughout the Old Testament. Mostly, it doesn't appear to mean anything more than the grave or, or just death. Uh, it doesn't seem to refer to any kind of understanding of life after death. Sheol is just death. It is the grave. What we know of Sheol from the Old Testament, therefore, is that it is down there somewhere where the bodies get buried and it is dark and it is silent. It is the unknown void into which people pass from which they never return. And when the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as we, we call it, was translated into Greek, the Greek word Hades was used uh, to replace the Hebrew word Sheol. So this is where uh, Sheol comes into being Hades. Um, this then brought with it into the Jewish tradition of Sheol all of the Greek connotations that the Greek word Hades had already acquired. So in the tradition of Greek mythology the name Hades was used to refer to the god of the underworld who together with his brothers Zeus and Poseidon had defeated the titans to rule over the entire cosmos and Zeus got to rule the air, Poseidon got to rule the sea and Hades got to rule the underworld and in time Hades came secondarily to refer not just to the god of the underworld but to the underworld itself and within Greek mythology it's uh, possible for people to make daring visits to Hades uh, so um, Heracles, for example, learned the secret entrance to and from Hades and could go there and visit it and, and visit the people who had died and, and were being kept there. And so it was that uh, what happened 
uh, within the Hebrew tradition was that the Hebrew concept of Sheol, this place of silence and darkness, started to acquire some of the characteristics of the Greek underworld, Hades, where people could have adventures and where exciting or terrible things happened. And this fusion of Sheol with Hades led to the development uh, of the idea within Judaism of the afterlife as a place of punishment and reward, uh, with Hades being somewhere that both the righteous and the unrighteous might go. So in, for example, uh, the book of Acts chapter two, Jesus is spoken of as going to Hades at his death and returning from there at his resurrection. Uh, if, you're, if you want the reference for that, it's Acts chapter two, verses 27 and 31. And sometimes in the later Jewish traditions, Hades was thought of as a place not so much of punishment, but being more like a kind of holding cell where people are detained until some future judgment day. Sometimes, however, as in Jesus's parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it's a place where punishment is already taking place. The New Testament uses the word Hades only 10 times, four times in the gospel and a couple of times in Acts, and then four times in the book of Revelation, where it is always teamed up with death. So you can see how within Judaism, the tradition is developing. Um, and then we get to the word Gehenna, and this is the third world, third word that we need to know about, um, which is used to describe the place of judgment in addition to Sheol and Hades. Um, this word Gehenna is a word adapted from the Hebrew Gehinon, which is a valley outside Jerusalem, uh, which uh, 2 Kings 23 speaks of as a site of child sacrifice. And certainly by the time of Jesus, it's uh, known as a pit of burning garbage. Um, you can see in this picture uh, the old city of Jerusalem, um, which is kind of on that, almost on that area uh, that's undeveloped now outside Jerusalem. Um, they would have thrown their rubbish into the valley and uh, it would have given off um, methane, which would have burned. And uh, it was the place where the rubbish got burned away. And this word Gehenna is usually translated in English Bibles as hell. And it typically refers to the place where bad things are burned away. So, for example, when Jesus says it is better to cut off your sinful hand and throw it away than it is for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The word that's being used there is the word Gehenna. In other words, it's better to cut off your hand and have that burned away than for your whole body to be burned away. So all of these three images that we've got going on here of Sheol and Hades and Gehenna are in the background to Jesus' parable. But interestingly, uh, that's it as far as hell is concerned in the Hebrew Bible tradition. We have the dark, silent void of the grave, Sheol. We have the Greek mythical underworld of Hades creeping in and introducing some Greek ideas into the Hebrew tradition. And we have the fiery city rubbish tip of Gehenna. The problem with the word Gehenna being translated into English as hell is that just as um, when Sheol became Hades in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it ended up inheriting all of the baggage that the word Hades carried with it of the Greco-Roman understandings of the underworld, which in turn themselves owed much to the Egyptian understanding of the underworld. So when Gehenna becomes hell into the English language, 
it inherits all of the medieval imagery of hell that isn't part of the Jewish or early Christian traditions. So we end up with uh, medieval images of hell getting read back into the biblical use of the word Gehenna. And as far as the biblical witness itself is concerned, hell, Gehenna, contains no pitchforks, there's no Hieronymus Bosch, there's no Dante's Inferno, there's no limbo, there's no purgatory. In short, there is no hell, as we often think of it, there in the Bible. So it's within this context that we need to encounter Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. We need to try and shed so much of what we think we know about hell in order to get back to understanding what it is that Jesus is doing. And what we discover is that Jesus is not offering some description of a future post-mortem existence for each soul where the damned and the saved can see each other across some you know, spiritual divide. He isn't setting forth a comprehensive account of what happens to people when they die. Rather, he's telling a story based on an Egyptian story that people would already have known to make a very important point. And the key to understanding that point lies in just who he is telling the story to. And the clue lies in a few verses earlier in verse 14. We're told that Jesus is telling this story because the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of this and they ridiculed Jesus. So I'm just going to stop sharing my screen now and we can just go back to me. So Jesus' story is aimed at the Pharisees, the one Jewish group that had an especially well-developed concept of who it was that was going to spend eternity suffering apart from God and who it was who was going to spend eternity safe within the embrace of Father Abraham. The Pharisees had that well and truly sorted. They knew who was in eternally and who was out. And this parable isn't Jesus systematically setting out his own cosmological understanding of the relationship between the here and the hereafter. Rather, he is engaging, as he does in so many other places, with those who think they have a monopoly on the right answers to the questions of life and death. And Jesus tells this story to show the Pharisees that all their carefully wrought certainties might not be quite so certain after all. The Pharisees were convinced that by their meticulous religious observances, by their careful ethical practices, they had earned themselves the right to call the shots of who was eternally in and who was eternally out. And it is precisely this certainty that Jesus is seeking to overthrow in this parable. The Pharisees were rich, both materially and spiritually, and they believed they were rich because they were blessed. And they believed they were blessed uh, and that this meant that they would spend their eternity with God. They also believed that those who were not like them and were poor in body and poor in spirit were that way for a reason and that their poor state would continue into eternity. The Pharisees were very deuteronomic in their understanding of the fact that they deserved their blessings whilst the poor did not. 
uh, the poor rather deserved their poverty. So imagine the effect of Jesus' story when the rich and apparently blessed man, who is clearly, you know, uh, the rich man, clearly a cipher here for the Pharisees. Imagine the effect when the rich and apparently blessed man finds himself in Hades with the poor man, Lazarus, safe with Father Abraham. Jesus is taking the clinical and judgmental logic of the Pharisees and turning it against them. The warning could not be more stark. Those who judge others are at most risk of themselves being judged. Those who do not exercise forgiveness and compassion towards others may not experience forgiveness and compassion themselves. There are some of us Christians who are very quick to point the finger at those whom we are very quick to condemn. And there is a warning here that we ignore at our peril. It's interesting that the rich man doesn't do anything overtly evil to the beggar. The rich man isn't a wicked or cruel man. Um, the, uh, the, the, the extension of that in Maddie Pryor's song, which makes him out to be very cruel, is, is part of the, the later tradition of this parable. But in many ways, this rich man was probably a very good man. But, and it is a, a very big but here, he just simply fails to see Lazarus. He is blind to the suffering of the poor. He cannot see beyond his own comfort and his own security. And his failure to recognise the humanity of Lazarus is a failure that, it turns out, within the world of the parable, carries eternal consequences. You see, whilst we may not want to extrapolate from this parable to a medieval view of punishment in the afterlife, Neither does it offer us the opportunity of thinking that our lives carry no eternal value. This is no mandate to eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. In fact, quite the opposite. It seems that the message of Jesus is very clear. How we live today determines in a very real sense how we shall be eternally. If we live life for the rewards of the here and now, without heeding the call of God to have regard for the lives of others, then the contribution of our lives to God's eternity might turn out to be less than we would like to think it is. We need, perhaps, to be less concerned with our avoiding hell in the hereafter and a bit more concerned with the circles of hell that we create or perpetuate for others to inhabit in the here and now. Albert Schweitzer, the theology professor and world-class organist, gave up his life of wealth and status to become a missionary doctor in Africa. And when asked why he did this, he always pointed to the parable of rich, the rich man and Lazarus. And in his mind, the parable seemed spoken directly to Europeans. He said, we are the rich man, whilst out there in the colonies sits wretched Lazarus. Well, this situation has not really changed and it is not limited to Africa. Listen to how Tom Wright puts it. This is a reading from uh, Tom Wright. He says, we've all seen him. He lies on a pile of newspapers outside a shop doorway covered with a rough blanket. Perhaps he has a dog with him for safety. People walk past him or even step over him. He occasionally rattles a few coins in a tin or cup asking for more. As I see him, I hear voices. 
It's his own fault, they say. He's chosen it. There are agencies to help him. He should go and get a job. If we give him money, he'll only spend it on drink. Stay away, he might be violent. Sometimes, in some places, the police will move him on, exporting the problem somewhere else, but he'll be back. And even if he isn't, there are whole societies like that. They camp in tin shacks on the edge of large, rich cities. From the door of their tiny makeshift shelters, you can see the high-rise hotels and office blocks, where if you're very lucky, one member of the family might work as a cleaner. They have been born into debt, and in debts they will stay. Through the fault of someone rich and powerful who signed away their rights, their lives, in effect, a generation or two ago, in return for arms, a new presidential palace, a fat Swiss bank account. And even if the rich and the poor don't always live side by side so blatantly that television brings us together. So we all know Lazarus. He is our neighbour. So says Tom Wright. And I would want to add that Lazarus is currently living in hell. And it is a hell that others have had a hand in creating, and it is a hell that we have had a hand in creating. And Jesus calls those of us who are not currently living in hell to see Lazarus sitting in poverty at the bottom of the pile. And he calls us to dip our finger in the water of life and to offer it to Lazarus to cool his tongue. Poverty is not to be sanctified, and neither is wealth to be vilified. Poverty is not a gift from God, but a problem often the result of sin by numerous people, which needs relieving. And wealth may indeed be a blessing of God and the result of hard work. But also, as the Greek dramatist Menander put it, property is a veil for many evils. Jesus' parable attacks, you see, a particular kind of wealth. It does not attack wealth per se. It attacks the kind of wealth that does not see poverty and suffering. It attacks the idea that possessions are for one's own exclusive use and that they are owned without responsibility to God or to other people. This is not, as some have feared, an opiate for the poor which will keep them satisfied with a handout. The parable does not tell us how the wealthy are to assist the poor, but it insists that the poor are the brothers and sisters of the wealthy and that the injustice of the juxtaposition of wealth and poverty cannot be tolerated within God's eternal perspective. Our lives matter eternally to God. And when the dross is cast into Gehenna to be burned away, and when we pass through Sheol to the arms of Father Abraham, there will be a question to answer, and it may well be as simple as this. On your way through, did you see Lazarus? a challenging and thought-provoking sermon. Does anyone have any particular first reflections they want to bring? I quite like the pairing of uh, Lazarus with the refugees as they were attempting to cross the Mediterranean and being beaten off by Europe's defences. I thought uh, that was quite a telling parallel. but one of the more obvious ones. If I did want to explore the concept that justice, we always seem to equate with punishment. 
And I'm not sure the two terms are that in parallel. So um, one of the parts of the Christian gospel is that you get this uh, radical inclusion of everybody. And that everybody includes Judas, for instance. Um, and the Catholics used to have this concept of purgatory. It sort of disappeared out of Protestant theology, um, mainly because of the indulgences issue. But there is a conflict between the radical inclusion and the, um, the concept that punishment or justice involves punishment, which is permanent. Purgatory was a chance for people to uh, recover. And we've lost a bit of that. Yeah. Um, I think one of the bits that struck me is from the reading is those final verses that the sermon didn't quite go on to, which is the rich man's response to the situation he finds himself in, which is to plead for warning for his siblings. Oh, yeah. Because he recognises that in what he's done, they're doing something similar. And he wants to be able to give them the forewarning. And Abraham's effectively saying they've got all the warning they need. They have had Moses and the prophets. They've had the information. Can they hear it? Maybe I could... Um, Go on in. <laughs> sort of throw my two halfpence worth in, if that's the right word. Um, yeah, um, I think the words that do stand out for me are the, the seeing question. Um, because I think... Probably that's where the nub of it is in many ways. Um, but and I also think that we need to hear this both as individuals, but also as part of a wider, you know, group. Because uh, I think we often tend to feel that, you know, our response should be um, as individuals. And, and of course it should be, you know what I mean? But that's not the whole story. Uh, we are part of both a church community I mean we're human beings ultimately you know I think, I think that's what I want to get to um I spend a lot of my life not really seeing that um and that is partly to do with human growth that we often don't get to that stage of connecting with everybody so it's just to say that I do think the seeing business is critical so that we you know and, and Jeff you've, you've referred to this the idea of the refugees you know that's a very absolutely it's a stark reality to us in rich Europe you know but, but bringing it back to where I am as an individual um, if you like um, you know what am I seeing around me what am I seeing inside of myself um, and I think that journey is critical in a way before we can actually in a sense helpfully respond rather than a guilt response you know like an over it's overwhelming stuff this isn't it it you know what do you say I mean it's huge issues but you know bringing it to a helpful point you know where we're not kind of I don't know just totally overwhelmed and destroyed by the, the issues you know we, we are called this is a call to 
uh, you know, a, a common humanity and a common connection. And I think for me, it's about working on that um, myself in the world, in the community I live in, um, you know, my neighbours, the world I'm in. Um, and, and this time of lockdown, it's a hard, hard call because I'm already isolated, depressed and, and struggling. So, you know, these things are heavy. But also I would say the important thing also is to, to realize that, you know, we're being called as a, as a, both a church, you know, as, as um, you know, a body to this, you know what I mean? And, and as a nation, we are, you know, we are being judged as a nation to our response to, to these issues. So I just think that sometimes is a helpful place for me to put myself when I'm, you know, so that I don't get overwhelmed by shame and, or, you know, there are other things where there's no doubt I am called and I am complicit, but, you know, I need to, place myself in a helpful context hopefully so that's just a kind of a gut response a bit really to to what is that and thank you simon it was great you know but but it's it poses so many questions that you know i need time to just go away and um yeah think about it i um the the two words i normally try and jot something down um, during the sermon and the, the the two words that i wrote down actually in very helpfully um very helpful comments were were guilt and and visible because i think that the whole concept of um as simon said this hell picture and this is just it's re it's really difficult to actually move away from what we think we know and from stories and from things we've seen on telly and from things we've read and and with that comes a lot of guilt because obviously probably rightly so in this context we're, we're viewing ourselves as rich and we're um we're trying to work out i mean when simon's talking about the homeless man that, that we step over we're, we're acutely aware that in london we're doing that quite a lot you know often literally you know almost having to to step over and so for me, I do find myself struggling with these kind of passages because of the guilt that it, it makes me feel about my own circumstance. But the visibility I felt was really an important thing. Um, it's interesting that in the passage you've got, um, you know, the dogs actually recognize that, that Lazarus is there and, and that, you know, has, has sores and the dogs come. It, it's kind of like, but then other people don't recognize and then you've you've got this strange situation where in this hell kind of setting you've got then the rich man being able for the first time to see Lazarus and and see that and I I think that I think that that this in some weird way I mean obviously for the Pharisees is a bad it, you know it, I'm sure they weren't very happy with the story I'm sure that that you know that it was a bad story for them but I think that we need to recognize that actually for some this is a good story for people who are being overlooked for people who are are hurting for people who are uh, in pain for people who are not getting the justice for people who are in the corners invisible um this story shows a situation where that they are um raised up and are visible and are 
and I think that, that all this guilt that it induces, we also need to recognize as a community, there are people within our community that would not necessarily view themselves as the rich person, but actually people within the community and people we work alongside and, you know, are probably more akin to, the, to Lazarus. And I think that for them, this story, and even for me sometimes, and, and for all of us, this can be a story of, um, of good news, weirdly, uh, a story of being recognised and being heard, and um, and of being healed, and and so flipping it on its side slightly, um, and wanting to take, and wanting to still hit, feel the right things, and to recognise the challenge here. I also try to move away from the guilt and recognise that there's something. Um, something good here as well yes i see that liz um actually i think it's almost rather telling that culturally we read this story almost as a condemnation of ourselves because we place ourselves in that rich man's shoes rather than necessarily in lazarus's shoes whereas actually the audience that heard it it will have been the Pharisees who was being it was being aimed at, but it's also the rest of the people around who are the sorts of people the Pharisees are condemning. And actually, for them, it is really a message of hope. And thank you for picking that out. I think that's very, very important. I'm also conscious that this week I heard on um, BBC World Service they've started on their Business Daily program following a series of. Um, through a life, the, a lady named Josephine who lives in a slum in uh, Nigeria, just outside, sorry, Kenya, just outside of Nairobi. And it's the effect of lockdown on that slum and of um, COVID, where the people who, there, who were there and worked within Nairobi, they were the security guards, they were the drivers, they were the house servants, etc 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 and as soon as covid came to kenya and nairobi the rich basically saw that slum as where covid was going to spread so they promptly stopped employing the people who lived in the slums they isolated themselves off from them and they turned their back on them because they didn't want them to import covid into the richer areas um, in some ways, the story has been a story of hope because there was a response globally to the story and funding to enable a, the start of a business within the slum that has sustained the lady and enabled her to keep on because she was a teacher or she worked in a school and suddenly the school's closed. So the kids are at home. They've got to somehow in a one room slum dwelling, keep them from mixing with the neighbors when they go out to play. Hmm? Um, it was a telling reflection that the poor are hit harder by the changes that we have imposed um, to protect against a virus because they've got less buffer, they've got less space, they've got less ability to adjust.
Um, I also want to bring in some of the thoughts from the chat. Um, Micah, Benji, has made an interesting point that draws back on the Wednesday evening discussions in provoking questions. Um, it's an interesting reminder of our discussion on Wednesday that the cost of feeding the UK is only about 5% less than feeding India, a nation seven times our size. Um, I think it has to be more than seeing, to Jesus' example, seeing and then transforming the circumstances of those we see, even unto death on the cross. Solomon's made the point, thanks to Simon for such a powerful reminder. It is reflective of the fact that we all still keep the notion of scarcity, wealth insecurity in a material sense, forgetting to acknowledge that human output is astonishingly plenty. Only the rich few have continuously refused to be a brotherly keeper. And finally, Duncan has brought up the issue of street homelessness as an interesting one. Personally, he doesn't feel he can help by giving money, but I'm very enthusiastic in trying to find ways to come alongside people and offer support as they recover from addiction to drugs or alcohol. And I think that's something as a community that we try to do as well. Um, the Simon community, the work that we do do at Bloomsbury for the homeless when we can be there and when the support is available. Um, I just think we've got to reflect on what that's going to look like when we are able to return, because I think it will have been significantly impacted. In our prayers this morning, I'm going to be using a, a responsive line and do feel free to join in with it if you wish. Um, it goes, Lord have mercy and open our eyes to see the need. So let us pray. Loving God, who sees and knows us all, we come to you this morning to pray for the world in which you've placed us. This morning we particularly think of those who are quite literally living in hell. We're aware of so many situations where that is true, that we can only begin to pray for some of them. I want to start with places where there is ongoing fighting. We pray for Myanmar, where we as a church community have links. We pray for those whose lives have been turned upside down by the military coup, and those who are risking their lives by protesting against it. We pray for Dr. Sasa, who has visited us at Bloomsbury several times and spoken to us about his work. He's now Myanmar's UN envoy and apparently was with Aung San Suu Kyi when the military came to arrest her. We know that he had to flee into hiding. We pray for his safety and that he may be able to negotiate between the two sides in order to bring about peace. Lord, have mercy and open our eyes to see the need. We think now of Syria 
and of the thousands of people who've been forced to flee from their homes and livelihoods and have become refugees. We pray for the two sisters whom we as a congregation are helping to support, that they may continue to improve their English and as lockdown eases, begin to build new lives for themselves here. We pray for the leaders of our country and other rich countries who want to deny entry to refugees and asylum seekers. We ask that they may see such people as those in real need and desist from using language of hatred and discrimination to describe them. Instead, looking for ways to support them. Help us all to recognize the desperation that leads people to leave their home country and undertake a dangerous journey in order to build a new life. And we think specifically of those 400 plus asylum seekers being held in former army barracks in Kent in overcrowded and unsanitary conditions where COVID is rampant. And we read of refugees who are still having to use the flip-flops and t-shirts they were given on arrival during the summer and who have no coats or proper shoes to equip them for winter. We pray for Sheikh, still awaiting a solution to his situation. Lord, have mercy and open our eyes to see the need. We pray for Afghanistan and a multitude of other situations where people are surrounded by fighting, whose homes and livelihoods are being destroyed. For those, mostly children, abducted from their schools by Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. For Eastern Congo, for Mozambique, for Yemen, particularly for the children without sufficient food. And again, for our leaders who want to cut the aid budget from 0.7% to 0.4. We pray for those countries, including our own, who sell arms to these places where there is war and by so doing, enable the violence and death to continue. Lord have mercy and open our eyes to see the need. We pray for those in deep poverty, struggling to feed their families and keep their homes warm. For those who've lost their jobs and can see no way out of the current pandemic. For those who've recently lost loved ones through COVID or for other reasons. For the family of Sarah Everard and the parents of those children who were killed in Dunblane so many years ago. For the long time homeless who cannot find their way back to a life off the street. For those who suffer from various forms of mental illness and struggle to find a way out. For those who are bullied and those living in abusive relationships. For those who are finding it hard to cope with lockdown. Lord have mercy and open our eyes to see the need. Finally, we pray for ourselves, 
that we may recognize the ways in which we are like the rich man in today's parable. Most of us have warm homes, enough food to eat and medical care when we are unwell. We sincerely ask you to help us to become more and more aware of our responsibilities as privileged people. Open our eyes that we may see clearly, that we may recognize those around us who are in the depths of hell. Help us as individuals, but also guide us as a congregation to decide where we should be doing more to support such a need. Lord, have mercy on our blindness. Open our eyes to see the need, to feel the anger that comes through sharing the pain, to experience the hope that dares to imagine that things don't have to be this way, and give us the strength and courage towards ending it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so on this Mothering Sunday, where we would normally at the end of the service be passing out flowers, and we can't, I want to just close with a breath blessing and say, may all of us recognise the mothers to us in our community and our own parents and the opportunities that we have to see and to thank them for the our love and care and kindness that they give us all. Amen.